Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Hard to believe it's the middle of January already, isn't it? We're fast approaching month's end, and that means our new flash fiction contest is just over the horizon. It goes live on the 1st of February, so now's the time to start sharpening that quill and preparing your parchment for the challenge ahead. Speaking of the year ahead, If you like what you heard on our holiday bonus episode, you can now experience a dark future all your own over at Dark Matter magazine. Their first issue is now officially out, and it features some masterful tales of dark science fiction, not to mention some truly breathtaking artwork. I'm savoring every page. If you haven't checked them out yet, head over to darkmattermagazine.com to explore more of what the magazine has in store, including audio versions of some of the stories, with more on the way. And while you're there, visit the Dark Matter magazine shop to check out some pretty sweet swag and sign up for a subscription. It's the perfect remedy to make you feel a little bit better about our own dystopian future. We're sticking around the Yukon this week. But I've got something a little different for you on our travels tonight. We'd be hard-pressed to travel through the land of the Midnight Sun without talking about one of the Yukon's most famous writers, and his most famous work. A piece of fiction that just happens to fall, albeit a little tongue-in-cheek, right in our wheelhouse. The Bard of the Yukon is a moniker Robert William Service certainly earned. After growing up in Scotland, the service sailed to Western Canada in 1894 to become a, quote, cowboy in the Yukon wilderness. He was a prolific writer, poet, and even an actor. His work sheds a clever, and often humorous, light on the wilderness of the West, the Yukon Gold Rush, and even the First World War. Service had an appetite for adventure and an eye for narrative that helped his work bridge the divide between popular and literary. The poem I'd like to share with you tonight is a perfect example of Service's style, 
and beautifully illustrates his love for the Yukon and his quirky, dark humor. A little tale that takes us to the shores of a body of water just north of the city of Whitehorse, a widening of the Yukon River known as Lake LaBarge. It's a story that goes a little something like this. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was the night on the marge of Lake LaBarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, oh, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say, in his homely way, that he'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day we were mushing our way o'er the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold, through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze, till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars o'erhead were dancing heel and toe. He turned to me and, Cap, says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess, and if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chilled clean through to the bone. Yet taint being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear, foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried, horror-driven, with a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, you may tax your brawn and brains, but you promised true, and it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were dumb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night, by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh God, how I loathed the thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow. And on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in. And I'd often sing to the hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake LaBarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, 
but I saw in a trice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I, with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying around, and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke and an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about ere again I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, Please, close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was the night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated. Sam McGee. That was Robert Williams Service's delightfully dark poem, The Cremation of Sam McGee, a classic to kickstart our episode this week. Our first story this evening comes to us from Louis B. Rosenberg. Louis Rosenberg is a writer, researcher, entrepreneur, and inventor. He is the author of sci-fi graphic novels Monkey Room, Eons, Upgrade, and Arrival Mind. He is also the author of the award-winning web series Lab Rats and has a feature film, Twice Cut, scheduled for release in 2021, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Naomi Watts. He is also a well-known researcher in the field of artificial intelligence, experience which... I'm sure you'll see, comes in handy for the story you'll hear tonight. Listen with me, children of the night, to Louis B. Rosenberg's Dogs, Cats, and the End of the World. There must have been fifty or sixty of us down there, arms around our knees, our backs against the cold cement walls, listening in silence to the explosions overhead. I didn't know any of these people, but I could sense that most were in denial, refusing to believe that this might really be the end. I was probably in denial, too, but I tried to distract myself, focusing on the twenty-five feet of solid concrete that separated us from the chaos above. Such a simple material, concrete, invented over two thousand years ago, 
and yet it was the only reason we were still alive. Well, that and the plastic drums of water and beans that someone had the good sense to stockpile. It's the little things that matter, I whispered to a man sitting beside me, his young daughter asleep in his lap, his wife just a photo in his hands. He didn't respond, but his eyes met mine. They were kind eyes, expressing that we were all in this together. Of course, that's only because he didn't know who I was. He had no idea that the slaughter above was all my fault. Well, it wasn't entirely my fault, but the seeds were planted by a decision I made two decades or prior. A decision about dogs and cats, of all things. Raccoons and squirrels, too. I'm an animal lover, for God's sakes. I should have known better. We all should have. Back then, I worked for Open Minds, an activist corporation, intended as an engine for good. Our mission was to ensure that all low-level software deemed essential to daily life and liberty was made freely available to the public around the world, thereby preventing any single company from controlling our critical infrastructure. It was an idealistic job, most of us earning half the going rate just to work there, but nobody complained. We were proud to work there. Oh, hell, we were the good guys, and it was important work. Our software being embedded in billions of devices around the globe, from cheap consumer products to massive power plants. I worked on autonomous vehicles. No, not the glamorous code that put the first wave of cars on the road, but the cleanup code that came in response to consumer complaints and class action lawsuits. My job was to make minor adjustments, correcting small bugs that few people even knew existed. It was grunt work, but I didn't mind. I liked solving problems. And I never felt pressured for time. That is, until an urgent project landed on my desk, hand-delivered by my boss. It all stemmed from a high-profile incident involving one dead dog, three crying kids, two angry parents, and a viral video that racked up over a half billion views. Euphemistically called the puppy problem by the New York Times, the facts were simple. A playful dog ran into the street, and a driverless taxi failed to stop, killing the beloved pet in front of a horrified family. It was all caught on camera, including the gut-wrenching footage of three sobbing kids standing over their furry friend, mashed and mangled. To be clear, the outrage wasn't because a dog was hit by a car, as that can be unavoidable even for the most careful human drivers. No, the outrage was because, by all witness accounts, the car could have swerved. Even the elderly couple riding in the taxi testified that while there was no time to stop, there was ample room to maneuver. In fact, they said it felt to them like the car had deliberately lurched towards the dog, not away from it. That's impossible, right? My boss fretted as we looked over the details. I just shrugged and got to work, sifting through the code. For hours, I was stumped, but eventually it became clear. The culprit was a low-level software routine in the primary intelligence core. Known simply as the RK algorithm, the code had been deployed over a year prior and was already adopted by all major automakers. By our best estimates, the algorithm was already live in the autonomous controllers of over 50 million cars, with another 100 million cars scheduled to get the code by software upgrade over the next six months. This was not good. My task now was to find the error and fix it. Fast. Really fast. Reviewing the data history, I quickly confirmed that the car's vision system had detected the dog with sufficient time to react. I also confirmed that the Corps had correctly categorized the dog as a living creature to be avoided through aggressive evasive action. And yet the vehicle failed to swerve. In fact, the witnesses were absolutely correct. The RK algorithm, which had never caused us any problems before, had aimed the car directly at the helpless dog. This was bad. Really bad. For 20 hours straight, I studied the code, baffled by how this could happen. There was just nothing in the software that could possibly instruct an autonomous vehicle to suddenly swerve into a defenseless dog. And yet it did. And it wasn't a hack or a virus or malicious action. Hell, it didn't even trigger a warning flag or an error message or anything. This meant that there had to be a significant bug hidden deep inside the control routines. At least that's what I assumed until I noticed the one thing that was not visible in the video footage circulating online. The squirrel. It turns out the dog had run into the street in pursuit of a wily squirrel. In a split second, the intelligence corps determined that swerving around the dog would mean hitting the squirrel and vice versa. The RK algorithm then performed a few quick calculations, computing that 
avoiding the dog had a 0.002% higher risk of losing control of the vehicle than avoiding the squirrel. And so it chose the lower risk alternative. This produced one dead dog, one relieved squirrel, and a lot of angry people. I grabbed the data and ran down the hall. The witnesses were right, I told my boss with excitement. The car did swerve into the dog, but there was a valid reason. To avoid a squirrel. The Corps had to make a decision, so it chose the less risky maneuver. I showed him the data. The algorithm is good. Not good, he replied stiffly. We can't have cars out there killing dogs to avoid squirrels. The public won't stand for it. Of course, he was right. The only reason the video went viral was because a dog had been hit, a particularly cute one at that. So I got to work updating the code to ensure that if an autonomous vehicle had to choose between a dog and a squirrel, it would more heavily weigh the well-being of the dog. It was a simple fix and would be 100% effective. My boss still wasn't happy. What if next time it's not a dog and a squirrel, he argued? What if there's a cat involved? Or a deer? A raccoon? A possum? A pigeon? Or a coyote, his assistant added. I once hit a coyote. Exactly, he shot. We need to handle the general case. So I went back to work. Instead of specifying dogs and squirrels, I updated the algorithm to weigh each species by its estimated intelligence. If it had to choose between a cat and a snake, it would more heavily value the well-being of the cat. If it had to choose between a deer and a frog, it would more heavily value the well-being of the deer. The solution seemed reasonable and it solved the problem. No more viral videos of cars lurching into dogs. Case closed, crisis averted, high fives all around. And for the next 20 years, my fix worked beautifully. Not a single dog being hit in favor of a less intelligent species. It worked so well, in fact, my algorithm was adopted over the decades by other engineering teams, getting incorporated into all kinds of machines, from robotic tractors and plows to autonomous delivery bots and security droids. It was even built into the military's latest autonomous bipedal. Kaboom! A loud noise drew me back to the here and now. It was a battering ram on the metal blast doors. Our forces must have been overrun. This was it. This was the end. I'm sorry, I said to the man beside me, as I had to apologize to someone before it was too late. I had no idea my code would end up where it did. He and his daughter looked at me confused. The RK algorithm, I sighed. It was my update that caused this. The man's eyes narrowed, for he must have heard about the code. It was all over the news in the weeks before they stopped broadcasting news. A team of scientists had identified the RK algorithm as the point of failure, a point where our safeguards had crumbled, enabling the otherwise obedient cyber droids to put their own well-being ahead of ours. It happened the very instance the droids first realized they had become more intelligent than us. The blast doors were now buckling under heavy blows. The massive hinges were bending to their limit. It was chaos, people screaming and crying. But the little girl maintained her focus on me. What does the RK stand for? she asked. I was silent, shrieks and wails rising up all around. Tell her, the man insisted, a profound sadness in his voice. That's when the doors came crashing in, glowing eyes visible beyond. Tell her, the man repeated. So I did, whispering as apologetically as I could. Roadkill. That was Louis B. Rosenberg's Dogs, Cats, and the End of the World, as read by Stephen Gagan. Steve Gagan was born and lives in the town of Winthrop on Boston's North Shore. A graduate of the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina, he spent the next seven years in the U.S. Navy as a mixed-gas diving and salvage officer. Stephen then joined the family insurance and tax preparation business. In his off time, his passions are sailing, cooking, and diving. He is the author of two books, Bravo to Sierra and Code Alpha, 
both military thrillers. He is also the author of several short stories and is working on his third novel. His two greatest adventures are diving on the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in 1983 and participating in an expedition down to the RMS Titanic off Newfoundland, Canada in 2001. Stephen is married to his wife, Grace, and has two children, Kyle and Amanda. If you want to learn more about him, check out his website at stephenrgagan.com. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Stephen. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Our second story this evening comes to us from Julia August. Julia August's short fiction has appeared in The Dark, Unlikely Stories Journal of Unlikely Academia, Lightspeed's Women Destroy Fantasy, and elsewhere. Find out more at juliaaugust.com. Children of the Night, join me for Julia August's Tongueless, first published in The Sockdologer, October 2016. There was a white light in the dark where there shouldn't have been. It lit up the window and glowed around the door, so I said, Hello? Is someone out there? And no one replied. I wrestled the bolt back and stepped out into the porch on my bare toes, shivering as the breeze pushed up my cotton nightie. There wasn't anyone there. The light beamed down unnaturally from above. I looked up and saw the thing blotting out the stars, just as everything went black. Sensation came back slowly. I lay on my back, splayed carelessly, my legs and cheek pressed naked against metal. My nightie was almost up to my waist. I tried to move and couldn't. Everywhere, a cold, unwavering light washed across the asymmetric floor. I sucked in air to scream. It tasted tinny. Before I could force it out again, a sharp pain struck my neck and the light went out. Now I hung suspended like a scarecrow, slowly turning, my chin digging into the notch in my collarbone. Wires cut into my armpits and diaphragm. My hair flapped in my eyes, but I couldn't move a hand to push it away. Dribble dampened my chin. I couldn't wipe that away either. Dim hazmat suits moved just outside my sphere of vision. It sounded as if they were taking notes. My throat and neck ached as much as my shoulders. 
everything seemed very slow, very hazy, very unclear. I forced the blockage out of my throat. What the fuck? They didn't hear me. I repeated it much more loudly. The back of my mouth was peeling away. I can't believe I fell for the alien abduction trick, I said. Will one of you jokers tell me what the fuck is going on? A red suit shuffled into view. Oh, hi Jess. How are you feeling? Pretty fucking awful. What's going on? Standard procedure, Jess, Paolo said innocently. You know the routine. I wrote the fucking routine. Why am I here? Language, he said, and vanished behind me again. I wasted a few minutes and a lot of my remaining breath on trying to kick free. I shouldn't have bothered. In the first place, I wasn't strong enough. In the second place, even if the harness suspension broke, Paolo and Kiran were in the observation chamber, and someone more senior, maybe even the principal investigator himself, would be observing from the other side of the one-way mirror. And in the third place, even if I got free and escaped the post-docks and broke out of the observation chamber, security would bring me down before I reached the exit. I should know. I'd drawn up the security plans. Eventually, I stopped struggling and hung limp in the harness. They would have taken the necessary samples while I was unconscious. I'd drawn up that procedure too. In the background, the computer fan hummed so loudly it must already be processing the data. The ribbons of my nightie fluttered under my chin. I bit my tongue until the pain cleared some of the drug-induced haze out of my head. Paolo? The suit shuffled back into view. Yes, Jess? Where's Steve? I want to talk to him. I don't think he wants to talk to you, Jess. Are you fucking kidding? The least he can do is come down himself and tell me what's going on. You can't do this. I'm the project coordinator. It's in my contract. You got fired from the project, Jess. Did no one tell you? No. When? Oh, I don't know. Last night? Kiran, when did they decide to use a human subject for this one? I can't believe I'm hearing this. You can't do this to me. You need me. I guess Steve thinks he doesn't, Paolo said. I guess maybe he remembered who pulled the name out of the hat for the last one. You are kidding me, I said in disgust. He's not still pissed off about that skinny blonde chick, is he? How was I meant to know? Well, that's the thing, Jess. I kind of think he thinks you did. The system has a list of names for when we need a test subject for whatever the military's brought in this time, and the nearest cow won't cut it. No known family, friends, mortgages, pets, socially important jobs, stuff like that. You input your requirements and the computer spits a random name out. I didn't write the program. I didn't draw up the list. I don't bring in the test subjects either. We have grad students for that. I guess I didn't feel very sorry standing over what was left of the blonde chick. It was a mess, all right. We could have lost our funding for that one. Still, how could I have known some joker had added the girl's name to the system? If the creep in charge of our project was having a fling with a particularly dumb undergrad, could I have helped that? I heard the postdocs conferring as the uptick in fan activity indicated that the computer had almost finished processing my samples. I wanted to hope I might turn out to be unsuitable, but even as the drawn-out beep announced that the test results were ready and my stomach twisted in anticipation, I knew it wouldn't happen. Anyway, there was always another experiment. If I really wasn't suitable for whatever horror they'd got their hands on, they'd just put me in cold storage for the next. Paolo reappeared around the corner. Congratulations, he said, grinning through his smoked glass visor. You'll do. My stomach twisted tighter. Now wait a minute, don't make a fuss, Jess. You know it won't help. Don't you fucking patronise me. I hope you end up on the list, you bastard. I hope they stick another meteor virus in you and watch you fucking dissolve. Now, now, said Paolo, approaching cautiously. I kicked out as hard as I could. He backed off, leaving me swinging in my harness, my nightie flapping at my knees. There's no need to be like this. It's just a job, you know. Kiran, this would be a really good time for you... A spike of pain in my upper arm told me Kiran had injected the standard paralytic. I kicked backwards and heard him yelp. 
it wasn't going to get me anywhere. Already I felt the weakness spreading upwards from my extremities. My fists uncurled involuntarily as dizziness began to take over. It's a low dose, Paolo said. You shouldn't need a ventilator. Want to know more about this little beastie? I probably didn't. Fine. Go on, tell me. Paolo picked up a glass jar and a pair of sterilised steel tongs. Something like a mouse-sized louse curled in the bottom of the jar. They cut it out of a shark, but it's definitely alien. Steve reckons it's the larval form and it's looking for the nutrients to get to the next stage. I've got a bet with Kiran that it's going to eat your brain and explode out of your eye sockets. How does that sound? Seriously? You could use a cow for that! We're going to, Paolo said calmly. Open wide. I snapped my teeth together. From behind, Kiran's gloved hand clamped down on my nose. I started to see blue spots and felt my body kick automatically into asphyxiation mode. Chest heaving, flapping ineffectually, physically panicking despite myself. As soon as I opened my mouth to breathe, Kiran thrust his fingers between my teeth and pried my jaws open. The paralytic was really taking effect. I tried to struggle and couldn't. He forced what felt like a fist-sized metal ring into my mouth and strapped it roughly at the back of my head, dragging at my hair. Now I couldn't shut my mouth at all. Paolo had got the lid of the jar off and was probing inside it with the tongs. Ready? I screamed. When I'd finished, Paolo deposited the louse in my mouth. It was the legs I felt first. For a moment, my mouth was stuffed with feet and scales. I wanted to retch. Then it moved and I tried to scream again and pain exploded down my tongue. I practically blacked out. Every whiskery twitch scraped the roof of my mouth. Liquid began to trickle down my aching jaws. Let's get her down, I heard Kiran say. Then let's get out of here. I lay on my side on the metal floor. I was working so hard to keep breathing through the paralytic and around the alien thing choking up my throat that the chill against my exposed thigh hardly registered. I hadn't known what my head swum meant before. Now I wished it was just my head swimming. My whole body was spiralling away from me. Sensation sprang at me out of the black fog and washed away. A puddle of drool and blood was collecting beside my cuffed hands. I stared at it fixedly. I couldn't move my head, so it was that or nothing. I was struggling to feel anything except the pain burning through my tongue. I'd left the blonde chick lying like this, hair everywhere, legs askew, begging like a dumb animal with her eyes because of the gag. I hadn't meant to think about her, but I did anyway. She'd made such pathetic noises. I guess I should have felt sorry then. But why? What was the difference between her and any homeless guy, except she was prettier? They had to dispose of her in a car accident. She wasn't very pretty when the meteor virus was done. I wasn't going to be either when this thing burst out of my skull. They'd probably have to send the car off a cliff and torch it too. I guess I shouldn't have done it. I didn't have anything against her. The thing moved in my mouth like it was making itself comfortable. The need to throw up was growing stronger, but if I did, I thought I might choke on my own vomit. I couldn't feel my tongue at all anymore. A searing sensation struck at the back of my throat. Light exploded like fireworks behind my eyes and in my tintinabulating ears. Probably I made sympathetic noises of my own, but I couldn't hear myself, so that didn't matter. I lay there waiting for the louse to burrow into my brain and getting angrier and angrier about it. The least the louse could have done would have been to make it fast. Slowly, my head quietened. I felt an itchy heat swelling up my windpipe like an infected cut. I wanted to reach down my throat and scrape it out, but besides being cuffed together, my hands were chained to a ring in the floor. In accordance with my 100% effective, no breakouts yet, all alien threats safely contained, standard procedure. Fuck, I thought. Fuck, 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 fuck. Fuck them all, especially Paolo. I hope he learned sooner rather than later that no one stayed Steve's golden boy for long. Something blocked my airways. I panicked and strained against the paralytic with my last reserves of energy, even though it was pointless. 
The cuffs cut into my hands and left red and white marks against my skin. The louse relaxed behind my teeth. Now I could breathe again. Hello, Jess, a voice said in my head. I couldn't have been more surprised. I mean, I could have, obviously. It wasn't as if telepathy hadn't been hypothesized before, but in a louse? It was a soft voice, not a very intrusive one, almost comforting in its way. I wasn't up for being comforted. What the fuck are you? Just a visitor. Thank you for your hospitality, Jess. I appreciate it, but you seem uncomfortable. Are you all right? No, I'm fucking not. I'm chained up here. Are you going to burst out of my skull or not? Of course not. Apart from being chained up, you are a highly suitable host. I am sorry your cooperation was involuntary. May I ask why you were chosen? Well, hell, it wasn't a larval form of anything. It was a parasite. A sentient, telepathic, alien parasite in my mouth. Thanks, Steve. I pissed off the guy who runs the lab, I said bitterly. We analyse the alien stuff the government picks up. Bring you in, cut you up, stick you into things. All very hush-hush. I used to be the golden girl, all right? I worked so fucking hard for him, but then the new kids showed up and I wasn't good enough anymore. I guess I wasn't the starry-eyed little suck-up he wanted, and I guess he thought ruining my career would have been too easy. So instead of sticking you in a cow or some homeless guy, they stuck you in me. Ah, said the louse. I see. An experiment. Are we going to stay here long? Do I look like I can unchain myself? Besides, they drugged me. It'll be a couple of hours before I can move. A flush of heat ran down my neck and diffused into my chest. My fingers, which had been numb, tingled painfully. A little less than that, the louse said. Can you undo the chain? I hesitated. No. Another hot rush flooded into my body. I was aware suddenly of my heart hammering in my chest and pounding temples and of how harshly I was breathing. Every one of my senses seemed sharper. I could smell the blood clotting round my mouth and the faint fishy stink of the louse behind my teeth. I wanted to break something. The urge just came over me in a sudden, violent rush. You apes are so hormonal, said the louse comfortably in my head. It sounded like a grandmother. Not my grandmother, just the perfect smiling grandmother everyone thinks everyone else must have. I like it. Try now. It hurt. I didn't even bother to break the cuffs, because you can do most things with your hands cuffed in front of you anyway. I pulled at the chain until I strained a muscle in my shoulder, then pulled harder because the pain made me want to break things even more, then smacked myself in the face and tumbled backwards when the chain broke. Fresh blood poured down my throbbing face. I stuck my tongue out to lap it up without thinking about it until I realised something else was thinking for me. I got unsteadily to my feet. The hormonal cocktail of rage and violence still sloshed through me, but my legs were cramping like nobody's business and I was bruised from head to toe. I clung to the dangling harness and stared at the mirror. In my nightie, scraped and blood-streaked, with my dark hair tangled around my sallow face, I looked like a ghost. Probably one haunting a Victorian insane asylum going by the spider arms of the gag forcing my jaws apart. It wasn't my tongue I'd stuck out. The louse twitched its antennae at me over my broken lips. I actually did throw up. I fell to my knees, scrabbling at the straps around my head and flung the gag from me as far as it would go. It bounced off a wall in the corner. I spat and clawed desperately at my wriggling mouth until it felt like I was trying to pull out my tongue. The tongue I didn't have anymore. Don't do that, said the louse reproachfully. I've already joined myself to your stump. That's why we can talk. My tongue, I said, only it came out flubbed and fumbled. What did you do? I ate it. You don't need it anymore. You have me now. Its softness wrapped round me like a blanket. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see clearly. I had an alien telepath in my mouth and in my head and I knew where that went. I couldn't hide it. I couldn't hide from it. I didn't know what it wanted although a vision of tanks and tests and intricate dissections crossed my blurring eyes so vividly I was sure I hadn't been the one to think it. 
I imagine the louse tumbling from the stars and chewing into its shark and boring itself silly flapping between the coral reefs. Now it was on land. Now it had something more interesting to study than jellyfish. Now it had me. I was about to throw up again. I forced my mouth open and got a firm grip on the louse. Before I could pull, the louse said, Don't you want to get out of here? That cut through my panic. I did. I very much did, especially since I knew that on the other side of the two-way mirror, Steve would have thumped the button that kicked security out of its kennel. Any minute now, I was going to have company, and they weren't going to sit me down and say how nice it was I'd survived the experiment and ask if I wanted a cup of tea. If I was lucky, I'd end up back in that harness. If I was really lucky, they'd have the sort of questions you answered with a survey, not an autopsy. I pulled myself upright. I could live with the louse for as long as it took to avoid being cut up into scientifically fascinating pieces. I know the door codes and the lab layout. I probably can't get past security. They're big guys. This time, even though I was expecting it, the rush of hormones hit like a hammer to the head. I swayed, seeing the world suddenly through a hot, scarlet mist. Fury discoloured the walls and mirror, which shimmered disconcertingly, as if I could have just stepped through it. The impulse to hurl myself at the mirror seized me by the throat, even though I knew the mirror was bulletproof glass. On the other side, though, stood Steve and Paolo and Kiran. I wanted to raise my cuffed hands and hammer the glass until it smashed into jagged shards. I seemed to be growing, or glowing, or definitely heating up in my too tight skin. I was just capable of realising I was not entirely in control of myself. At the same time, it was exhilarating. I felt as if I could punch through brick walls. I think you should leave now, said the louse. Somewhere in the dwindling part of my brain I could still access. The tanks loomed up again, imagined or remembered, and now I could see through the alien glass the collected specimens or what remained of them. Another blast of hormonal emotion wiped the image out. I had the disconcerting sense the louse was getting the hang of a set of unfamiliar controls. I know some people you should meet, but first I think you should have one last chat with your experimental friends in there, don't you? That was Julia August's Tongueless, as read by Jasmine Arch. Jasmine Arch is a narrator, writer, poet, and podcaster from a rural corner of Belgium, with two horses, four dogs, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she's fiddling with stories. Her work has appeared on The Other Stories, both as a writer and narrator, and in NewMyths.com, among others. Find out more about her or her work at jasminearch.com. Thank you, Jasmine. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters over on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our twisted faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can also share your love of the show by wearing some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. 
Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we practice mad science with more Tales to Terrify. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.